Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I am talking with guest Dr. Latoya Webb. She is the instructor of undergraduate instrumental conducting and music appreciation at Auburn University in Alabama. And in this episode, Latoya and I discuss her early experiences, issues of gender and racial equity in instrumental conducting, imposter syndrome, and mentor-mentee relationships. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. Please make sure you share it with your friends, and make sure you're liking and following all of our social media pages, as well as checking out our website. And I will see you next Monday. My name is LaToya Webb, and I am originally from Richmond, Virginia, and I am currently in Auburn, Alabama as an instructor of music, teaching music appreciation distance courses, as well as undergraduate uh, one, part one, and part two of conducting, and that's what I'm doing right now. Awesome. Pandemic teaching. It's the best, right? <laughs> it, it is. It's, uh, you know, a different way to stretch you, test out your flexibilities, test out what you know, what you don't know, what you want to get better yeah. at and what you want to grow at. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a learning experience for me trying to get, you know, middle schoolers to hop on a Google Meet. That's been fun. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure it's much easier than thinking about uh, the generations before us. <laughs> True. Yes. I, I've, my heart goes out to all the teachers that, you know, are of the older generation that can struggle sending out emails, let alone get their kids Absolutely. on class virtually. <laughs> Absolutely. I have, you know, given quite a few different sessions on Zoom and how to navigate through some of these platforms such as Canvas. So I, I understand and I know. Yeah. Yeah. So I always like to start with kind of a baseline, just so everybody can understand where you're coming from and your background and that sort of thing. So what got you started in music in the first place? I started singing in the children's choir at a Morningstar Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, close to three and a half to four years old. Uh, the choir was called the Starlets, and uh, of course we had our little white robes on with our yellow stalls that I guess simulized the star. <laughs> That's why we were called the Starlets. Um, so my musical journey started in the church um, singing in the in children's choir, and as I became older, I sung in the youth choir and the adult choir um, at that same church until I went off to college. And even when I came back for my breaks, uh, for, for college, uh, for winter break, spring break, I still participated in singing in the choir. So that is my initial start to music. Uh, neither one of my parents have a musical background. I do know that my father, I mean, he did play the guitar, but it was, it was not something uh, that he learned in school or that he pursued. I guess it was just a, a guitar that was passed down to him. 
um, from uh, his father. So it was a Gibson. Uh, so he used to play the honk-a-tonk um, when I asked him if he could play it for me when um, he had, somebody from his family had given him that guitar and said, you know, this was your father's. Um, so he had he brought it home and it was one of those things where I said, well, I don't know how to play this. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> but uh, we went to the music store and got a guitar book and um, like I said, he played the honk-a-tonk for me, and, and that was pretty much it. I, I don't recall him playing anything else, so I guess that's uh, what he was into if, he, when he, if and when he did play the guitar. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, how much do you think, you know, you growing up in your church choir and all those things that you've done with, with that, how, how much do you think that has influenced your life and your musical career? I think it has definitely influenced my ears mm -hmm. and how I feel music and the passion and love for music. Um, we all know that when you go into a church, you uh, yes, you may have a hymn, but there are many people who are singing from those hymns that do not know anything about musical notation. So yeah. even though they're going through that process and holding the hymn and sharing it with the partner beside them, and uh, reading the words from that hymnal uh, in the text, um, it's, it's a common ground. Um, it's something that's symbolized in, in that culture and um, it's, it's never gonna go away. Um, and now, even more so, you see many of the churches that have the words up on uh, big screens or projectors in the church, um, while you know individuals are still holding a hymn or not holding a hymn. So here we go again with these are individuals who, who have you know no clue, like they don't know anything about the musical notation. They don't have that basic fundamentals background. Um, so it just goes to show you that music can be for anyone and everyone. Um, so I, I think that's the, the bigger half of that is just really opening up my ears to the different harmonies, um, melodies, cadence points that I hear in other music, um, which is also in church music. So that mm -hmm. it's, it's a blessing. It's wonderful. Yeah. And I think that's, that's amazing that you had that perception of music is for anyone at such a young age. And you brought up the good point of music notation. And there's always this sort of back and forth between the importance of notation versus the unimportance of notation, right? right? And I think that goes to show you that, yeah, it is, can, it can be for anyone, no matter whether you can read notation or not. And I, I wish I had that experience growing up. I'm very jealous of anyone who has participated in any sort of choir that wasn't like super classically oriented and pushing notation, um, because you did get that perception. You were with people in the community who are not music people who didn't necessarily know how to read music or if they did only to a certain extent. And for like me and myself, I, you know, was a band kid through and through all the way forth through 12th grade. So all music for me was notation, notation, notation all the time. And in that way, it can kind of build barriers um, between people who don't know how to read notation and people who do, they may not fully understand what's going on. And it kind of creates a sort of like elitist mentality of, oh, you don't know how to read, like, I must be better than you. And right. it kind of, it's like a weird barrier that creates that. So I'm kind of jealous of people that were able to have that communal experience from such a young age. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, we are people, we're different, and we all have different perspectives and experiences and way of life. Um, but it, again, it comes back to that ending point of that, you know, it's for anybody, it's for everyone. And um, anybody can enjoy music, whether they have the skills or not. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, completely agree. So what made you want to major in music? Oh, well, we have to go back just a little bit now. <laughs> so even though I started singing in the children's choir, I actually, I started playing the clarinet in the fourth grade at um, Elizabeth D. Red Elementary School, which is about mm, maybe two blocks away from my house. Um, so I began playing the clarinet and my teacher was uh, Mr. Charles Newton. He was so passionate. He was always energetic. He had so much patience uh, with every every student. And I, I think, you know, just looking back on that, it, it was definitely something to be thankful about um, because everyone may not have those skills or those qualities now. People get so flustered. Um, but, you know, he really had the drive for it. He was passionate. He loved it. He loved music. And like I said, he was patient. Um, so fortunately for me, uh, band class, when I was in elementary school, was during P.E. And um, it, it was exciting because I got to leave P.E., especially if I didn't want to be outside. <laughs> oh, I'm so jealous of you, girl. I, didn't to, I had to do gym. Ugh. No, uh, band class was during P.E. And oh. I was able to get out of P.E. to go to band because that was something that I really wanted to do. And um, so I would skip PE and go to band class for the complete duration. And um, I, I enjoyed that, that time. I had a lot of group um, lessons. I had a lot of private lessons with Mr. Newton. And of course, we all played as an ensemble. Uh, but it, it, it was just a joy that I didn't feel like um, I was taken away, like anything was taken away from me by not being in PE. Yes, I enjoyed PE. I enjoyed recess just like any other child. But um, when I got into playing my clarinet and learning about music, uh, it was just another level for me. And um, it's funny because my sister, she uh, started to play the flute as well at the same elementary school. We're five and a half years apart. Um, however, she had to get out of band because it was during her math class and uh, the, her skills, those skills started uh, to just come down in math. So my parents decided to pull her out of band so that she could be in, in math, which of course is great. That's one of those core courses. Um, but, you know, I always think about what she could have done or if she would have continued in music or, you know, like where she would be if she could also uh, be in that in that world where she could explore or have an outlet or just have another skill or something to do. Um, so uh, it was unfortunate uh, for my sister, but thankfully for me, I had PE. But I mean, I don't know if it's still built that way in other schools and other programs where band in elementary school is at another time of another course. I'm not sure if that's still the same structure, but that's how it was when I was in elementary school. That's so interesting. I, I'm trying to remember back when I was in elementary school, I, I want to say band didn't even meet during the day. I think we met like after school a couple days a week or something. And then I think like my lessons were during the day and I got pulled out of um, class. I want to say, I don't think every school is like that. I, I, I best, I think that some probably are for sure, but I'm so jealous you got out of PE. My <laughs> <laughs> We don't got, be jealous. Don't be jealous. I still went to PE on some days. But, 
most of our, the days I found myself in a, in the band class. Um, but I did still have a general music class, even mm-hmm. though I still had band um, at the time of PE. I still remember having a general music class and, you know, singing yeah. and playing the recorder and doing all those things that you do in a general music ed class. Mm-hmm. Um, so I still had that experience as well. Um, but it, it's, it's just something else when you find, I guess, like people say, I found a shiny new toy. Um, so and that was my clarinet. And, you know, I enjoy playing and I enjoy learning and I enjoy just working with my uh, band director um, to, to become better. That's awesome. So is that your, your clarinet experiences? Was that what kind of um, propelled you into studying music at the collegiate level? Uh, I could say so. I continued playing the clarinet even in uh, middle school, and mm-hmm. um, I really enjoyed that at the time as well. The group was much larger than in elementary school. Um, everyone had so much heart and drive, and everyone seemed very talented. The music uh, was more challenging. I began to find the space that I fit in and was able to listen to so many other timbres and uh, musical lines around me. It wasn't just about me anymore. Um, Like I said, I had a lot of private lessons in elementary school, so I was getting used to hearing myself and hearing the timbre of the clarinet, but when I got to middle school, I I got to hear so many other instruments, and I mean, our our group was good. Uh, Every instrument was pretty much covered, so I got, like I said, when I say I had that space, like where I found my space where I could fit in. I knew that, oh, if I, my part wasn't important, that, okay, let me scale back on my volume because I should be listening to this right now, mm-hmm. or this part should be coming out, or, okay, I have the melody now, and my part is kind of hard, but I'm still going to play it, <laughs> so I have to play out a little louder. Um, so that's what I mean by finding my, my space, fitting in that group, yeah. um, and we did a lot of traveling in middle school. I got to travel to Toronto, Canada for a music festival and to Florida uh, for the Sunshine Festival. Uh, there there was just some great times just traveling the world and doing what I loved at mm-hmm. uh, such a young age and hopefully others are or have if they are not doing it right now because of the circumstance but hopefully others are seeing that you know music can take you places and you can get to see things and do things that you probably think that you would not be able to do otherwise. Um, But yeah, I still continue to play the clarinet in middle school. And while I was in middle school, I also marched in uh, my high school's band uh, during my eighth grade year uh, because the schools were literally, I'm going to say, a a block or two blocks away Mm -hmm. from each other, the middle school and high school. So uh, myself and a group of the other students at Thompson Middle School, we would uh, walk across the street together and go to uh, marching band practice at Huguenot High School in Richmond, Virginia. So um, that, and just thinking back to my middle school experience, um, I remember asking my band director, Mr. Glenroy Bailey, if I could lead the ensemble one day. It was for a warm up. And he looked at me and he said, you know, sure, why not? And so I had been watching him, you know, all those years, every day in rehearsal, seeing what it, it was that he did. And I wanted to give it a try. And I'm just so thankful that he said yes, because that could he could have said something else. <laughs> yeah. He could have said no. He could have, uh, you know, not given me that opportunity. Um, so that was pretty much a, a spark, you know, for me. 
um, that, wow, I get to do this and he normally does it, but he's letting me do it. So I, I, I better do it really well then maybe I could do it again. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so that was one of those big moments where I, I knew that I wanted to lead in that type of capacity. Um, so I took things more seriously. I, everything like observing him and watching what he did as a, as a teacher and just how he rallied us together and got us to do whatever it is that we needed to do at that time. Um, and it's crazy because I was thinking about a piece that I played um, in middle school. It was uh, Ice Castles, themes, theme, of, theme from the Ice Castles. And there was a part in this music. I don't remember the composer. I don't remember who, you know, the public, uh, who published the piece, but it was Ice Castles. And we were practicing, myself and um, my first clarinet partner. And there was a note, it was a D, a D6 above the staff that we were trying our best to hit and we went home and practiced and practiced and we just could not get this note out. It was so high, <laughs> um, it sounded screechy and um, we were just trying to figure out the mechanics of the clarinet. We all know that that's a hard instrument anyway. Um, and thank God there's so many people that play it. <laughs> it's a wonderful instrument, it's a beautiful instrument. Um, but at that time in middle school, trying to hit that D6 was, it was a struggle. And I remember the night of the concert us playing this piece, the note just came out effortlessly. It just uh -huh. came out flawlessly. And our director looked over at us and he smiled, grinning from ear to ear, and he winked at us. And that was the highlight of my night. Like, you couldn't tell me nothing after that night. Um, <laughs> so just those little experiences like that, it just shows you that, hey, you can keep going. You can keep doing this. It's for you. You know, no matter the struggles or whatever is going on, that you can still continue to keep fighting and keep moving forward. So um, that's just one of those experiences that's really touchy because every time I see him, that's one of the things that pops up. Like, you remember that time when, you know, we couldn't play that note, but then we had the concert and it came out and he just chuckles and laughs and it's a good time. Uh, but I started, you know, I kept playing the clarinet even in high school. Um, after that eighth grade year of marching in the band and then going into high school as a uh, freshman and I continued playing um, in the wind ensemble and um, the concert bands, the jazz band, I played the alto saxophone and jazz band and in marching band um, is where I uh, gained the leadership role as the drum major and that almost didn't happen because it was something that I really wasn't thinking about doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, my band director, he said, you know, he pulled me to the side along with another student, another female student. And he was like, um, I, I really want you to think about, you know, becoming a drum major and doing this. Um, I think that y you can do it. And um, I think you should, you know, give it a thought, think about it. Um, so I did, and then, you know, the next day I came and said, sure, you know, I'll do it. And I was terrified because I was only, um, a, you know, beginning as a sophomore, and everyone else was, you know, much older than me. And that's terrifying when you're thinking about, oh, this is little old me having to tell these older folks what to do. <laughs> yeah. um, so that was terrifying because, you know, I was like young, fresh, and... Um, I was just, I don't know, that, that thought of having 
to lead older people like frightened me um, because mm -hmm. they had been in band longer than me and they were already in high school and all of that. So I had all of that to think about and thinking about how will they look at me or how will they perceive me or will they even listen to me? <laughs> so yeah. um, that, that, that was big for me, but I got over that hump and I think probably that first time where I started giving commands, you know, so empowering to see that, oh, they're actually taking my lead. Okay. They're, they're following me. They're, they're saying, yes, ma'am. And okay. All right. Well, the floor is mine. So I had to step, you know, step things up and, um, take charge and be in that role. And I did. And, um, uh, you know, I'm thankful that he asked me to, to even think about that opportunity. Like I said, it was something that I wasn't really thinking about. Uh, it was terrifying. <laughs> so anyone out there, um, in my same situation or thinking about being a drum major, then, you know, you can do it. Uh, it's, it might be terrifying at first, but just know that it's something that you can do and you can get it done and um, just continue to move forward. Um, so I think uh, all together, all of my um, band directors, which were all uh, black males, um, elementary, middle, and high school, they, they all pretty much influenced me into going into music. Um, but I think it was that very last step in high school um, because, you know, you grow throughout, you know, those different levels, uh, elementary, secondary levels, um, and you really grow as a person, but for me also as a musician and trying to see what it is that I want to do in life. Um, so I, I would say that it was definitely that last step in high school, which um, really, I, for me, it was like, okay, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to go and study music in college. Yes, let's do it. Check. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's awesome that you had those mentors there that kind of pushed you in the right direction. I think we very much underestimate the power of mentorship um, and how important it is for especially music teachers to be mentors to students, um, especially at the secondary level. You just have those kids for so many years usually that you end up being a big force in their life, you know, whether or not they decide to pursue music or not, but especially the kids that decide to pursue music, you know, you are that person that can help them in the right direction for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, in this profession, it's hard because sometimes it feels like we're doing things so late. Um, I didn't really make those decisions until I was like a junior, senior, mm -hmm. but what if I made those decisions like dead on, head on when I was a freshman? And I think sometimes we, we get a little behind ourselves when we're reaching out to those juniors and seniors. We really need to be reaching out you know, to the freshmen and sophomores because, um, this will affect, you know, their entire life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you decided to pursue music at the collegiate level. You got your bachelor's at Norfolk State University and your master's in music ed. And then you have another master's from George Mason, and then you got your PhD at Auburn. So lots of degrees. Can you talk a little bit about your collegiate experiences overall, um, positive, negative, that sort of thing? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Let's see. For um, Norfolk State University, that's where I did my uh, bachelor's 
and my master's. Um, so Norfolk is in Norfolk, Virginia, if anyone's familiar with Virginia Beach, uh, close to that area, which is a historically black college and university. Um, and in that program, in that, um, like I said, in that program, I participated in the wind ensemble, clarinet ensemble, uh, woodwind ensemble, saxophone ensemble, and a marching band and um, in the capacity of still playing my clarinet, of course, and the saxophone. Um, I play the alto saxophone in the jazz band in high school, so I wanted to continue to still play uh, the saxophone as well in college uh, in any way that I could. I, I wanted to try jazz band in college, but I believe they met at 7 a.m., and my the way my body was set up was, uh, you know, like, no, it's okay. <laughs> It was it was hard. It was hard getting up, you know, on your own as a college student and not having your parents to wake you up or anything like that. So um, I, I just kind of let that one go of being in the jazz band in college, uh, mainly because it was so early. Um, but I had a, a lot of good experiences. Um, any, I think anyone will have good experiences when they are around, you know, their people, people who look like them, uh, people who identify yeah. as them, people who are doing the same things uh, that they are doing, or just having a good time doing those things and having the heart, uh, the drive uh, to be in band. And we all know that wherever we are in band or music in general, um, that it's always a, a community. It's always a family uh, for the most part. And you're going to meet so many different people. You're going to learn so many different personalities. And it, it doesn't matter if you're an extrovert or introvert. It kind of, it just, it, it just happens. Everyone becomes an extrovert because I can say for myself that I'm not an extrovert. I'm really an introvert. Um, but just because of this profession and uh, the, the groups that I have been in, um, as far as music, it forces you to be an extrovert um, in certain situations. Yeah. And um, I think that's one of the things where people see me and, and I'm like, I'm really, I'm really not a people. Like, I'm really not that big extrovert type of person. Yeah. I'm really an introvert. And I know people probably think like, hey, what's up with her? Or... <laughs> Oh, same. Me too. Yeah, no, I'm going totally on. Like, uh, yeah. I thought she was this kind of person or I thought she was that kind of person. Please know that I am truly an introvert. I like my space. I become exhausted from being around so many people. And it's kind of like I have to find my center. I have to go and recenter myself and my energy levels. But again, like I said, in this, this, this world, this profession forces you to become an ex extrovert, uh, giving all the situations uh, that we engage in. Um, and I mean, that's a good thing uh, because we do things that other people cannot do and we are put into situations other people are not. And um, we, we have a big family all the time. So that's definitely a blessing. So I've had a lot of, lot of great experiences there. The one experience uh, that I definitely can speak about that I also wrote about in uh, my article, uh, Empowering Female Conductors, uh, was that I auditioned to be a drum major and uh, I was de denied by the panel, and mainly because I was a female. Uh, this, this position in, in, at this institution um, historically has been held by males. Um, so that is the tradition 
uh, of having a male image drum major. And as far as I know, I was the third person or third female, not just person, but third female to audition in that capacity. So, you know, <laughs> two did oh. it before me and they didn't get it. And so here I come again. Uh, but it wasn't just about me. I had a lot of people pushing me to, to audition as a drum major. And one of the directors, uh, he really pushed me. Um, and I said, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. I, I, I know, like in the back of my mind, I already know that I'm not going to be, you know, in this position um, mm -hmm. because I am a female. Um, no matter what I did, um, but I worked really hard uh, that that semester and that during that duration of the audition and training. Um, he really pushed me like physical training, running miles and miles, five to ten miles, uh, calisthenics, uh, all kinds of just all kinds of physical training. Um, to build that stamina um, is one thing to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to be a drum major, but it's another thing, like, you have to be able to do everything in which you're expecting the the band, the ensemble, you know, the people in that group to do. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're telling them, okay, we're about to do 25 push-ups, hey, you better be able to do those 25 push-ups. Um, yeah. So it wasn't just about, you know, the physicality of things, but it was also the musicality um, which, uh, that, that was never, that was not an issue. Um, it's just that training so hard just to learn the different maneuvers and the moves, the dances, everything to a T, um, for what a drum major does. And, um, like I said, I had a lot of people rooting for me, peers, um, some of the staff, faculty, uh, previous drum majors, but it, it just wasn't for me. It wasn't my time. And, yeah. um, Mo pretty much most of that was due to the fact that in for tradition this this has been a spot held by males wow so, um that that was the biggest thing and i think the biggest takeaway or the biggest let let down about that is i guess being in that community where you are around people who look like you but those people also denied you at the same time mm, yeah that's so interesting yeah, it is, um, because many people are put in these types of situations where they're denied by others. But for yeah. me, I was denied by people who look like me, people who identify as me, my, my own culture. Wow. That's so crazy. And, you know, we, like, think of, I feel like that traditional band view just bleeds into everything, doesn't it? Doesn't even matter if the pool of people that are participating are necessarily diverse. There's still this tradition that people feel like they need to uphold. And it's so strange. It's so strange to me. Yeah, tradition goes a long way. And yeah. I mean, not only with the band, but you have to think about the alumni and yeah. their perspectives or their views and then you know, so much other stuff is, it's crazy um, to think about it, but, you know, I have lived it, I have experienced it, and I know I'm not the only person. Yeah, for sure. I mean, just you being a person that teaches at the university level and does, and teaches conducting and has all the, had these experiences and has been a drum major and being who you are, you know, you are challenging the norm and you are challenging tradition constantly. And I mean, I'm in the same boat. I'm a high school band director as a woman. 
I'm challenging the norm as well. I mean, I was, I was researching statistics a while back before I started this podcast and only like 15% of high school band directors are women. Only, it was like 5% of band directors at the university level are women. And it's even smaller for people of color. So it's kind of crazy that, you know, we are still just so outnumbered in this field. And so there's all this pushback all the time, no matter what you're doing, people are always challenging that, especially when it comes to conducting. I feel like there has to be this, we use words that are very masculine to describe conducting and we critique people in a way that is very masculine. And that's just the expectation now. And you know, I, I forgot what conductor it was, but someone was commenting about how feminine they were in their movements and things like that. And I'm like, well, she's a woman. So what? Like, does it matter? As long as she's getting the point <laughs> across, right? Like, why does it matter? Um, but I think that just all that pushback just stems from that tradition, quote unquote. I put it in quotes because I don't really think there's too much value to it. <clears throat> but, you know, like it's, it's crazy. It is. It is. And that's another thing that I discuss in my article, you know, the traditional or the historical issues of stereotyping and gender exclusion and the lack of uh, role models and mentors. Um, it yeah. still lingers around. It still haunts us. For <laughs> That's a better word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. It does haunt. And it's, it's, terrible because it often others people and boxes them out and those things and it makes it hard for that mentor mentee relationship when there is a lack of mentors to be mentoring mentees that was a lot of right. m words <laughs> but yeah it's crazy um it, it's it's something that d definitely needs to change and it's it's time for it to change for sure yeah, it absolutely does. And I mean, you, you're, you're stuck on the mentors, but think about the role models. There are so many role models out here for every profession mm -hmm. and whether people view themselves as such or not, uh, there's always someone looking up to you. Um, like I said, whether you know it or not. Uh, so when you don't see people who look like you, no matter who you are, it, it makes you wonder like, do I belong? Should I be doing yeah. this? Um, is this for me? Uh, should I be a part of this? I don't know. I don't see anybody who looks like me. So let me go this direction or let me go study this. Or maybe, you know, this isn't for me. So hmm. forget it. Forget it all together. Yeah. And I, and I think you honed in on a good point um, that we want to, especially if you work in a school district that does have a more diverse population of students, you want to make sure that you are showing people that are successful in the music profession that look like them. But also if you're in a school that is not very diverse, you should be challenging that as well and showing people others that don't look like them and just really challenge those norms that are out there because that's really the only way to do it. I think we just need to start at the bottom with K-12 education for sure. Absolutely. I think uh, that as well. And, um, you know, some people are just, on a high horse or they're on another planet. And unfortunately in this profession, sometimes it feels like you have to reach a certain plateau or you have to have a certain type of uh, level of seniority before you could do X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think that's one of the things that hinders 
um, many individuals in this profession because they don't get invited to come over to another school to mm. conduct them or to give a workshop or talk on some type of uh, topic or discussion or whatnot. They don't get those opportunities. Why? Because people look at them as if, oh, you haven't done this. You haven't done this. Oh, you definitely haven't done this. So yeah. therefore you're canceled. Like you're out of the equation. And I think in this profession, we really have to move beyond that. We should be champion, championing everyone and at every level. Um, just because I teach on a collegiate level doesn't mean that I have to bring in all collegiate uh, colleagues. I could bring in elementary colleagues. I could bring in middle school colleagues. I could bring in high school colleagues. They are doing what they do well at their level. So why not bring those folks in so that they can help these undergraduate students who aspire to teach on those levels? I think you hit on a really good point talking about how bringing other people that are actively in that level of the profession into whatever class you are teaching and have them work with students because I, I do agree I think that is also a hole that's like missing in undergrad education for music ed students is that is that real world like being in front of a teacher that's actively teaching all the time. I was lucky and I had those experiences when I was in my undergrad, but I didn't realize that that wasn't a norm until I left it. <laughs> and, I was, and people are like, oh, you got to do that and that. And then I was like, yeah, I started doing that right when I walked into school. Like I was <laughs> out there doing field work. I was out there observing people. I was already teaching kids from day one, freshman year. I was in classrooms. I was working with community music programs. I was in there because it's the best way to learn how to do it. And then by the time I graduated and I got my first job, I felt super confident in what I was doing and I wasn't scared. When I went to student teaching, I was like, piece of cake, piece of cake. <laughs> I've done this for three years already, you know? So right. getting those experiences from the get-go is what's going to make good teachers. Not, oh, you're not gonna teach until you student teach your senior year. Like what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens at all levels. It happens yeah. as an undergraduate. It happens on the master level. It happens on the doctoral level. And it happens when you're actually in the profession. Like I said, it's kind of like you, if you haven't reached this certain platform, this plateau, this, this seniority within the profession, you don't get to do this. You don't get to do mm -hmm. that. Um, and it's so unfortunate because there are so many talented people out here and there's so many people that have all these different perspectives and experiences to share. And it's kind of like they're just on mute. They don't ever get a chance. They don't get the opportunity because of this. I, I don't know what to call it. It's I'm not going to say it's tradition. I guess it's just a culture that has like lived um, yeah. in this profession for so many years where people feel like, oh, I can't invite Dr. Webb until she gets to a big institution and she has, you know, she's done remarkable things with this ensemble or she's done remarkable things teaching this conducting course or whatever it is that people are expecting me to do. You know, it's just that thing where, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm just a regular person <laughs> until I do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> And it's so, it's so funny that, that you bring that up too, because I also think it, it directly also ties for those people that may be thinking about attempting to pursue something that this culture's created that has decided that it's not okay for them to do because they don't have, you know, X, Y, and Z um, under their belt. I think that also manifests this sense of imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Right? Like Absolutely. I feel imposter syndrome every day in my life. I'm 23 years old. I'm a high school band director. I, you know, I'm pursuing all these opportunities and I'm sitting there and I'm going, 
why am I doing this? Like I, I start to question myself, right? Like I, I don't, maybe I don't know enough. Like, why am I, why am I pursuing this opportunity? Uh, do, do I have the credentials to pursue this opportunity? Blah, 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 blah. And it, it makes you second guess yourself a lot. I mean, I, I went for a chair position for my, my all County, which is like district level, blah, 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 depending on what state you're in for the senior high festival. And I, it was open and I was first year teacher and I went, okay, fine. Like I'll put my name in the ring. Like, why not? And I ended up getting it, but I did not expect to get it at all. Cause I'm sitting there like, oh no, they're not going to pick me. I'm young. They don't think I can do anything. And so like, it also not, it's not only people that, you know, are older that are creating that culture. It's also causing younger folks or people that have not been given the opportunity to pursue these things, to feel that anxiety and to always be questioning themselves. Yes. Yeah. I, I was talking about this with one of my colleagues the other day and he mentioned imposter syndrome. So I, I definitely agree with you. Um, and for him, like when we were even having this conversation, I said, you know, I don't feel like I, I'm going through that imposter syndrome. I just feel like it's the culture that has been created. And in my mind, that's what I'm following. That's what I know. I know yeah. that I can't do certain things because I haven't reached this level of X, Y, and Z. So why even think about it? Yeah. So crazy. It is. <laughs> and even just thinking about instrumental music education and band specifically and conducting and things like that, it has this whole culture that we're talking about has been historically very white male dominated, right? Yes. And I went to, um, you are a part of the Women Band Directors International, and I can't remember if you were at this their, their virtual conference or not, but um, they did a, a session where it was literally just a bunch of black women who are university band directors and they just had a panel discussion. And I remember they were all sitting there and they were like, yep, this is pretty much all of us. <laughs> the entire country. I, I was on, I was on that zoom session. Yes, you were. Yeah. And it was so funny. Cause they're just sitting there like, this is, this is all of us. And there was, and there's like eight. And it's so crazy to think about like in the entire country, you can count how many black women are university band directors on two hands. Yes. I discovered that some years ago and people were looking at me like, what? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'm serious. I'm <laughs> yeah. I play clarinet. <laughs> I'm serious. It's I was a drum major. <laughs> yeah. It's only like eight. Yeah. That's what I know. If there is anyone else, you know, come forward, but that that's all I know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny to think about how, um, how cultures can, can so suddenly shift for a person that's in, depending on the community, like Norfolk State University is historically a black university. And then a school like George Mason and things like that, it's a bunch of different people there. And so I'm just wondering, like, how did your perception change from cha changing institutions um, based upon like shifts in community? How did you feel like you were represented as yourself and as your identity um, with those changing and shifting schools? Uh, I will have to say that uh, at George Mason, <clears throat> while the school population is diverse, it's still pretty much predominantly white, uh, predominantly white institution, yeah. as well as the School of Music, uh, that program. Mm -hmm. um, I played in the Wind Symphony under Mark Camphouse's direction, and um, I was one of three I believe, uh, black students in that uh, performing ensemble. Yeah. 
Um, so when I got to George Mason, uh, there was, of course, a, a sense of loneliness, not seeing other people who look like me in the building, not seeing other people in music doing what I was doing who, who look like me. Um, so it just became to a point where, LaToya, this is what you wanted to do. Uh, this is what you aspired to do. This was a goal of yours. So you just have to do what you have to do and get out of here and keep it moving. Um, and that has always been my intention with anything that I have done. Once my mind is set and I have you know, figured everything out, then that's what I'm going for. And people who know me um, know that about me and they know that I'm not going to let anything or anyone get in my way. I'm going to keep pounding forward uh, no matter what it is that I'm doing. Um, mm -hmm. So I can say that, yes, there was a sense of loneliness while I felt that people saw me, not, like they didn't just see a black female. They saw me as a person. They saw my personality. They saw me as a human, as, as a citizen. They saw me as a musician. They saw those things about me. They saw my talent, my gifts. Um, so there was never any question about that. It's just still being in a space where nothing reflects who you are mm -hmm. um, a as a person, like your culture. Uh, so that was one of the big things for me going to George Mason. But at the end of the day, I was looking at the, the end goal um, of what I had to do. And I knew that that sense of loneliness was only a part of that journey. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great positive outlook to have and to just, you know, focus on you, what you need to do. This is what you want to do and that sort of thing. And you had mentioned a few times so far in our recording of your article in teaching music, which is how I, you know, kind of discovered you and wanted you on the show because I thought your article was fabulous and it just resonated with me a lot being an instrumental music and being a woman. And so can you dive in a little bit more and tell everybody a little bit about your research in instrumental conducting pedagogy and how it relates to those equity gaps that occur in instrumental music? Sure. Um, so for my uh, dissertation, that study, it was based on instrumental conducting and looking at um, whether or not the verbal and nonverbal communication is such as speaking uh, verbally or um, writing verbally and your nonverbal communication, everything that we do as people and how that plays a part into instrumental conducting in the way that uh, in undergraduate instrumental conductors provide feedback uh, to students. Um, so the purpose was to, uh, it was a quantitative study, um, and it was to investigate the various methods of verbal and nonverbal feedback to compare and contrast uh, instructors' perceptions of feedback based on their attributes, uh, the school, and their course characteristics. Um, so that was a big part, learning how people provided feedback to their students, if they even touched on certain types of feedback um, dealing with conducting, um, because we know that feedback is a big thing in education, not just in instrumental conducting, but in education, period. Um, it's one of those things that we should all be striving for. And sometimes people just don't get to that level or to that point or take enough care or time to provide 
meaningful and individualized feedback um, because that's what really matters that individualized meaningful feedback that you are taking the time to look at those students individually and what they bring to the table and knowing where they are with their goals or objectives and then um, seeing how they can close those gaps um, to get where they need to in order to fulfill those goals and objectives with any any unit or any lesson of study that you're trying to do. Um, so I take feedback very seriously uh, as an instrumental conductor and I provide it in various forms uh, because we are all a, a reflection of our teachers. Um, it's going to be something that we do or say when we all become teachers um, that is a reflection from you know pr previous teachers um, and whether or not you take it with you and change it around or you use it or you lose it um, it's still a part of you so if I'm teaching my students about feedback um, I think it's important that I discuss the feedback and because I want them when they become teachers that they're doing the same things like they're providing that verbal spoken written feedback to their students as well and they're engaging their students so that they can do peer feedback and and just engage in that process in general um, because in this profession you're going to be critiqued you're going to be judged you're, you're going to be criticized about different things uh, for what you're doing and it's best to get on the bandwagon early and you know teach yourself and teach your students about that that type of feedback um, and it's something that everybody just does not do everyone's not comfortable with it and it, there's a lack of confidence all over uh, with uh, feedback and or receiving feedback you know some people are just not comfortable re receiving it um, so that was uh, the bigger umbrella about what the study is about and uh, how it relates to conducting and feedback. Now, as far as um, any equity gaps into my study, um, there was one significant difference uh, that um, dealing with race and nonverbal uh, feedback, communication and conducting. And I, I think that this was more prevalent because in this profession where conducting is dominated uh, by white males, it's more so a norm uh, for white individuals to already have this one leg up on everybody because it's more of a norm. It's a culture. It's a learned behavior. Um, when you're talking about nonverbal communication. When I go to conducting clinics, workshops, symposiums, I have gone to 12 of those conducting workshops, clinics, symposiums. Uh, they all have different titles. Uh, but I have gone to 12, and out of 12, no, sorry, out of 11, I have been the only black female at all of these conducting uh, events. Yeah as a participant and I specifically remember going to the University of Central Florida in 2019 I was the only female there period wow. um, so when I look around it's not a norm for people who look like me or people who are black to be in those spaces to be in, in the, that type of atmosphere in the conducting world at workshops and um, going to graduate school for conducting for their masters or for their doctorate um, so 
it's it's not a norm, but it is a norm for uh, white individuals because that's what we've seen for so long. And that's what everyone has seen and that's what they have seen. So it's already, you know, it's already a part of who they are. It's already, it's, it's, it's given. It's not something that you're thinking about, oh, I don't know if that's for me or I don't know if I can do that. You see people that look like you are who are doing it. So therefore, you know or you think that you can do it as well. But for people mm -hmm. who might look like me, it might be a different story. I, I don't see people who look like me. So I don't know if this is for me or I don't know if, you know, pe other people who look like me who may not be as confident as I am have thought that, you know, this isn't for me, or I don't see people who look like me, so I don't want to do it anymore, or that space isn't welcoming, or no one made me feel welcome when I went the first time. You know, some people prob probably went, or they probably put their foot in the door one time, and then they were uncomfortable, and they didn't know how to deal with that uncomfortableness, so they just took themselves out of the equation altogether. Um, so for nonverbal communication, I think that it's something that's more of a normal culture because that's, <clears throat> that's what many do in this profession. Uh, white males, white females, that's what many of them aspire to do. That's what many of them see. They see themselves reflected in the conducting world because there's so many people that look like them. Yeah. Where yeah. you have this lack of other cultures and I mean, don't get, don't get me started. You don't even have to think about cultures, but think about the different sexual orientations out here, the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm -hmm. You don't see many people who identify in, in those different sexual intersectionalities uh, as conductors. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I actually interviewed someone on an earlier episode um, and she is a transgender woman and uh, is a conductor and she actually started the queer urban orchestra out in New York City but when she was auditioning for graduate schools the schools where she was able to identi identify on the application that she is a transgender woman mm -hmm. um, she was not accepted at mm. the schools where she was forced to identify that she was a male because right. you know that's the way our world works unfortunately she so got awesome. into the round where she could conduct in front of people. But when she came into the audition and uh, went over to um, the people that were going to be watching her conduct and told them that she goes by she, they pronouns, she did not make it through. And she is absolutely convinced that it is because she identifies as a transgender woman. And um, she's tried twice. She eventually got into a program. Um, they took her under their wing and everything. And she ended up being okay, but it was about like 20 something schools that all denied her. And yeah. the majority of them were, they didn't even give her the chance to show her skills. Yeah, that is so, that's so unfortunate. And it's, uh, it's just sad mm -hmm. uh, to think that here we are in 2021 and you're talking not just about, you know, your race, the color of your skin, thinking, of, thinking way back to even um, being in the orchestra years ago and females not being able to be a part of the orchestra or just how they changed their audition requirements where um, uh, doing the screens um, so that blind screening auditions and um, putting carpet down so that people couldn't hear the women walk in with their heels um, to the audition. 
um, it's it's always something <laughs> that's going on that we just can't get past. And I'm just waiting, looking yeah. forward to the moment where we could just move past all of that. We're just all, all we're all individuals. We're all human beings. And we all have special gifts and talents and expertise, experiences. Uh, why why does one thing has to have to stop someone? Yeah, and I always talk about this in, in that music is an auditory experience, right? Like it's your ear, it's not your eyes. So why does it matter what somebody looks like? <laughs> yeah, I always bring that up, especially when it comes to I, I always get on my soapbox about concert dress and those sorts of things and how people. Oh, yes, yes, dress. yes. And I'm like, <laughs> why does it, especially, it, it really especially bothers me at like the secondary level for K-12 education, like middle school and high school students and how schools think that having a set uniform suddenly makes them better. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, the people that are coming to my concerts are my students' parents that don't care what their kid is dressing like. They're there to see johnny or mia play their instrument and to listen to their kid and applaud at the end yay woohoo nice job so why do we need to have a set uniform that is so binary and is forcing all the biologically female identifying people to wear dresses and all the men to wear tuxes and things like that when kids are just not comfortable with that yeah um it's it's certainly it's something else i just i just shake my head it's it's like you try and you try and people try and they try and it's, you just think about the many people that were canceled or the many people who just gave up all together, who were great, like who were awesome musicians, awesome people who could have had an impact in this world and this profession. And you, you know, you think about all those people and who are probably in some other profession right now. You know, uh, most uh, there's research out here saying within the five years that people get out of this profession and they go do something else. Yeah, yeah. The average teacher, just the average teacher in general, lasts like five years. I read that statistic somewhere and I was like, what? And yeah, yeah it's the same, same thing in music for sure. Absolutely. And it might be even less in music, it might be three years. Um, I mean, that's not research, but I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying the average for teachers, uh, you know, is five years, but uh, there's, you know, under, under representation is still apparent in our profession and not just our profession, but other places. But I mean, there's our profession because this is where we are. This is what we're doing. This is what we have been doing. Um, so it is still apparent in our profession. And um, it's possibly because of a lot of those historical issues of, uh, like I said, stereotyping, gender exclusion, lack of mentors, lack of role models, and possibly even a sense of not belonging. Like there are many people who just feel like they didn't belong in certain spaces and nobody made them feel welcome. Um, therefore, they left. They took an exit. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. I completely agree with all of that. Um, there's a couple other things I want to touch on uh, really quick about your research. You also have done some research in the gaps um, uh, that occur equity-wise in instrumental music at state and national conferences as well. So can we talk a little bit about the lack of diversity that exists at state and national conferences? Because this is another thing that I can get on a soapbox and talk about for ever and ever and ever and ever, but I wanted to hear your thoughts. Uh, you know, we've been singing this song for what, the past 10 minutes? <laughs> Yep. About these uh, equity gaps. Um, I mean, you could go to a conference and look around 
and um, you know see those numbers, the low numbers, uh, minorities, uh, marginalized communities in these spaces, and it's just like I said, it's just sad. It's unfortunate um, that many people just don't feel like they belong or many people don't know about certain organizations or certain things uh, because there's a, a lack of awareness. Uh, there's a lack of telling people, sharing the knowledge, sharing the wealth that you know, or, you know, just sharing, you know, I, I always learned when I was younger, sharing is caring. So like, what's wrong? <laughs> what's going on now about that. Um, but I, I have some uh, panels and some uh, research like with NAFME and the College Music Society. I have submitted some proposals on um, some topics uh, for those sessions. I'm not sure if I've been selected yet for those, uh, but there's a panel uh, talking about um, just being encouraging, like the conversation, like there has to be conversations about these, ec the equities in music and the, the discrimination and diversity. It's always, diversity always comes up as a, a buzzword or like it's a trend, like a fashion trend or something. And then it goes away and then it comes back and then it goes away again. Um, why can't it just stay? Why can't it be a thing? Why can't it be normalized? Why does it have to reappear as, as, as a trend? Um, you know, in this profession, people say music for all. That's a popular slogan in the music education world. But is it really? Are, are we doing some a disservice? Are we empowering everyone? Are we seeing everyone for who they truly are and meeting them where they are and taking them further? Um, are we listening to what they're saying? Uh, do we understand our students? Are we building those relationships, not just with our students, but with our colleagues, people within the profession? Um, and that's one of the big steps. And of course, the, the other main step is acknowledging your personal biases. We all have them. Everyone has them, and it's okay. Um, but you just have to acknowledge them and you have to figure out why you have them. It could be your upbringing. It could be an experience that you had. Um, it, it's something that it stems from and you have to figure out what it is and why you feel that way. And you have to get some friends. You have to talk things out and um, you just have to keep trying. You can't give up. That's for sure. One thing that I, I do want to, when we're talking about these conferences and that sort of thing, the lack of diversity there, I think there it's attributed to a few things. And one is that these state manuals and things that people have to play from in order to get into these state conferences and things like that when they bring ensembles are very, very, very white male washed. Um, even the New York manual, I, I went through myself and I counted how many composers were male identifying in the manual and how many were female identifying in the manual um, for like the, just the large band section. And I only came up with like five female composers that were in that manual and there were like 328 males. So there's that and that causes some issues there. And also just like what we deem as quality music and a quality ensemble is very subjective in a lot of different cases. Obviously like, yeah, you know, ensembles that are not, don't, you know, 
play very well in tune and things aren't can't perform at things like the Midwest. <laughs> like I understand that there's this, you know, there needs to be some sort of hierarchy there. But when it comes to repertoire and things like that, there's this very elitist mentality um, with a lot of these conferences. And I actually was, I was interviewing um, Bridget Sweet, who works at the University of Illinois. She um, done a lot of work with adolescents, changing voice, gender identity, those sorts of things. And she told me, she said, I, it would be so refreshing to hear an actual middle school choir at one of these conferences. She's like an authentic middle school choir that sounds like a real middle school choir. And it just made me crack up. Right. <laughs> Especially these sessions where they're supposed to be talking about, oh, this is how, what we do to like fix things. And this is how we provide individualized instruction. You're talking about like specific feedback, things like that. She's like, it'd be so much more beneficial if we had like a real choir to like actually watch, to figure out, okay, this is how this director does it instead of this polished choir of children that are just absolutely perfect and have been, are from, very small percentage of schools that just keep getting featured over and over and over again. She's like, I would love to just see some more diversity at these conferences and not only diversity amongst the people there, but also diversity in the ability, especially when it comes to these music education conferences that a lot of teachers are going to. And I thought that was just such a interesting idea that I'd never heard before, but also it made complete sense as soon as it came out of her mouth. I was like, yeah, why don't we have that? What's going on here? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree. Um, and it, it kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier about when you said polished performances, it just goes back to that that level, that plateau, that seniority, that, that type of culture that has already been created. Yeah. Um, like brainwashed all to a, to a certain extent of, of people. And we think that when we go to these conferences and things that that's what it's supposed to be, or that's, that's what it always is. And it really isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I always like to, towards the end of my episodes. I'm a person that's all about action, right? Like I, I'm like, okay, we can like talk about all the issues for forever and ever and ever because that's what everybody does. But I love to see people that are doing the work and are putting in the work and are um, pursuing different projects or finding organizations or doing things, putting resources out there. And you organized the first United Sound Collegiate Program in Alabama at Auburn. And um, I'm just reading here in your bio that United Sound is a national program that provides musical performance experiences for students with special needs through peer mentorship. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about this organization, why you helped organize it, um, where did the idea come from, that sort of thing? Sure. Uh, Julie Duty. She is the CEO of this organization and her and the director of bands here at Auburn are uh, really good friends. Um, they went to school at um, Arizona State University and um, you know they just have a, a good relationship, a, a good professional relationship and she mentioned uh, something about United Sound to him and he came to me and um, my wheels just started turning about uh, this organization um, because I, I'm one of those people like um, I'm not just looking at things about me or for me 
It's about the many people that I can influence and inspire in and through music. Um, so I said, you know what, I, I'm going to get this going. Like, I'm going to get this started. And I started researching different programs around Auburn uh, that we could uh, potentially work with. And it turns out that um, we have a program on campus uh, the Auburn Eagles uh, that we partnered with and we spoke a lot about them. Uh, it's the uh, education. So it's Auburn University's education to accomplish growth in life experiences for success program. Uh, that's where the Eagles comes from. Um, it's a comprehensive transition program for students with disabilities um, and it provides a post-secondary education opportunity for students to engage in a two-year uh, four-semester residential campus experience, but now uh, the program has grown since I started United Sound. So now this program is actually four years. They actually, you know, the students get to stay here just like all the other college students um, for a four-year program. Um, so it has flourished in many ways, and through this program, we uh, provide mentorship. So uh, whether the students are music majors or not, uh, those are the students who work uh, with the Eagles. Uh, they partner with the Eagles, and it's pretty much you have one Eagle, uh, two, two peer mentors. Um, so um, it's awesome. United Sound is great. They have their own method book. Uh, you get t-shirts, uh, wristbands. They have cool themes for the year. Like last year, the theme was uh, superheroes. So we did everything that we did pretty much centered around superheroes. We made posters. Uh, the students created their own superhero name. So and cute. they came up with uh, their own like superhero powers. Like one had to be whatever they wanted to be. And the other one had to be some type of musical superpower. Um, and they shared their posters. And it was always a good time. It's always a good time with the Eagles. Um, you know, just because these students have developmental or, you know, these learning disabilities doesn't make them any different from anyone else. Uh, they still have the capability to learn, and they do. And uh, we, like I said, we are going through method books, learning about music. Um, the notation is different, of course. Um, so for the notation for United Sound, they have um, soup for a half note. They have donuts for eighth notes. They have cake oh. for quarter notes. Um, so they just have a, a different uh, notation system uh, to work with the students. And uh, this experience has been a joy not only for me, but for the students uh, because I supervise the peer mentors here at Auburn. And it's not for me to be in charge. It's more for me to kind of take a back seat or chill out, you know, in a chair or on the side and just let the students do the work because as we stated earlier, it's about that practical and authentic experience. Mm -hmm. And I know from teaching in uh, the K through 12 level that I didn't have an opportunity uh, to work with students with special needs in music. And I wish I did. Yeah, that's uh, a big hole. That's a big hole that exists for sure. Yep. So the students here, I mean, they have that opportunity uh, to do so. 
and we have a good time um, learning, like I said, in and through music, and we do other things. We do icebreakers, we play games, uh, we move around, uh, we watch short films and discuss them, we hang out and have like social activities, so it, it's a big thing, and uh, United Sound is a thriving program. If you don't know about United Sound, I encourage you to visit their website, unitedsound.org, and again, Julie Duty, Duty, D-U-T-Y. She is the CEO of that organization, and she she's a rock star. She's always ready and willing to help someone uh, start up this program. So, um, if you have a community in your um, in your school, or if you would like to work with the students in your school, or if there's some other organization out there, I would say you can get on the bandwagon and, and get to work. It's not about you. It's about what you can do uh, for others in and through music, the service. Uh, that's that's what it's always about. And yeah, if you exactly. Think, all right. And if you think this profession is about you, then uh, this is the wrong profession. Yes. So true. Yes. We are a service profession and it's never about you for sure. No, I'm always hammering that too. I'm like, it's never going to be about you. No, it's not. And I'm, I'm sad. I'm sorry, but there are many people that I've bumped into who have that mentality and um, you know, I, there's nothing I can do to <laughs> just shake my head and keep being me, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 no, for sure. And I love how this program that you've organized at your school is providing these mentor opportunities for your students to be working with kids um, while they are in school as well and providing them with that experience with special ed kids because that is a huge hole. Um, I took one class on special ed um, when I was in my undergrad, I never got to really work with special ed kids, didn't get to work with them in a music setting because it was like a general education course. Mm -hmm. um, and so it wasn't until uh, actually a couple summers ago, I started working at, at a summer school program for special ed kids. And I was the music teacher at the school and I was teaching um, ages five through 21. Um, special ed kids had never done it before. And I was the music teacher. There was no curriculum. I had to do it all myself. Um, and that was honestly the best learning experience for me, but it was the first one as well. And which, which is really unfortunate because I wish I, I had that experience. I think that's awesome that you are doing that with your students and you're providing them with those opportunities. Absolutely. The program is steadily growing. Not only are we growing um, through our mentorship, but the equals program is growing. We started out uh, with four students and then it became eight students and you know it just keeps growing every year and we enjoy going over every new year because that's when the students get to test out the instruments uh, so we take all the instruments over there to their building and we're we're playing them we're testing them out and they're trying to figure out what they want to play and what they don't want to play <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's truly a good time it's a party um, and then we just get together. They come over, they visit our space, and um, they know where to go. They know what they're doing. And like I said, they, they learn just like anybody else. It may not be at the same pace, but they're still learning. And that's what, that's what matters. And their parents, you know, they come. We have a concert every semester that they play on. Um, so that may be with the symphonic winds or the concert band or the campus band. Um, but we have a concert and they participate in the concert and their mentors sit right beside them during the concert to help guide them through the music. 
And I mean, the parents, they're just so overjoyed. Like they are excited, tears coming down. They're just like all smiles and just so excited to see that, that their, their child is doing something else and doing something with music when other people may have told them that you can't do this. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so great. Um, yeah, and, and, and anyone is perfectly capable of participating in music. Um, and some, sometimes you just got to be creative with how you provide the instruction and what resources you use. And you may have to think outside the box a little bit because historically, and like we're talking about with this culture that has manifested, the box may not fit what your kids look like or who they are, but you, right. it's your responsibility as the teacher to be able to educate these kids. That's your job, right? So Absolutely. no matter who they are, it's your job to, to do that. And Absolutely. you can do it no matter it, who you are. It's about building those relationships. A lot of people forget that um, as they get older or move through the profession onto the uh, collegiate levels. They forget mm -hmm. about building those relationships in which they once did when they were uh, K through 12 teachers. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big part of the mentorship, the lack of mentorship, shall I say, on the collegiate levels where you know, the professors feel like, oh, I have this to do, I have that to do. Oh, I know this child's name or this kid's name or this student's name, but, you know, I don't really know anything else about them other than what I just observe. And um, you go back to thinking about your K through 12 uh, opportunities. Well, not opportunities, but your job and what you did. You had to get to know those students. And um, it's, it's the same thing on this level. You have to get to know who your students are and learn about their background, where they come from, their cultural identity, um, what they what they like, what they don't like, and um, unfortunately, everyone is is just they've just forgotten about that that piece um, to be being an educator. Yeah, and, and that's such a profound point because when I think back on my favorite teachers growing up and my favorite professors in college, it, it was literally just came to the ones that cared about me and knew who I was and knew what my interests were and where I was coming from. And not just that, but my, my students now, they don't think of me, the kids that tell me, oh, you're my favorite teacher, Miss Re, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's not necessarily the kids that are, you know, my best musicians, quote unquote, or my most technically skilled at their instrument, I should say. Right. Um, they're the kids that I put the time in to a from day one learn how to say pronounce their name yes and their pronouns <clears throat> yes. but also i know things about them like i remember that so-and-so likes the mets and i remember that so-and-so you know was learning this one dance for a tiktok video the other day and i remembered that and like or something like that like those little things those kids really do cling on to and they're like wow she really cares about me and obviously i authentically do but those are the things that they remember and so i'm not their you know those kids they're i'm not their favorite teacher because i'm i'm the band teacher and band's fun which i make band fun so woohoo but also just because <laughs> i know the kids like i know where they're coming from and i care about them and we should definitely be putting a lot more weight into that because then kids also want to learn more in your classroom when they know that the teacher authentically cares about them you get so much more out of them they buy into what you're teaching them so much more as well absolutely and it's one of those things that will definitely make the marginalized communities feel a little bit more 
welcome. Um, you're actually taking the time to get to know them rather than presenting them with your personal biases or deciding not to build a relationship because of those biases or uh, preconceived notions that you may have about them. Mm -hmm. um, we're, like I said, we're all different. We all learn in different ways. And just going back to United Sound, thinking about that, um, you know, the students who, those mentors who are working with the, the Eagles, uh, they're learning about different learning styles and how to teach um, in these different spaces. And um, they're just getting that practical experience and, it, and every will, everyone will not uh, receive those experiences. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful that um, they have this opportunity. And that's one thing about this profession, just having more opportunities and more access to things that you uh, would like to do or things that you aspire to do. I completely agree with all of that. And yeah, I, I think if we can move more into the direction of building those relationships, I think we can help music education for the better. And, and like you said, not only at the K-12 level, but also at the collegiate level as well. And I'm so glad that there are people like you that exist out in the world that are, are helping students and future teachers do those things. I think that's really wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I say this all the time to my students that uh, you all will be an instant reflection of who I am in some type of capacity. Um, and I talked about this a little earlier with you. We all take something from our teachers, our mentors, and we kind of make it our own or we mold it into our own or, you know, we just leave it or view it as it how it is. This is what my mentor did or this is what my previous teachers uh, did. So they're, they're always going to be an instant reflection of me. And I know that I have reached many students out here and I know that um, I have many more to reach or not just students, but just people in general. Um, so uh, it's a part of who I am and um, what others have instilled in me. Yeah, that's awesome. Latoya, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on and sharing your experiences and having this wonderful discussion. I think we've touched on so many different things and we've provided people with a lot of information. So I'm really happy that you took the time to talk with all of us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for thinking about me. Thanks for reading my article and thanks for <laughs> inviting me um, to, to do this uh, discussion with you. I, I really enjoyed it. I know that I have so many more experiences that I didn't even touch on, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. The important stuff that needed to be discussed today came out. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, I, I, I completely feel that we could talk for hours and hours and hours about all these things. I, yeah, for sure. Absolutely.